0: I think you have to negotiate with your husband, first of all. You have to negotiate when you're going to have a
1: date. Why did you assume this was about sexual submission?
0: I didn't. I thought we were going to dance.
1: <laughs> Mom wins that round. Do. Good one for you. Good one, Tammy. Everybody is going to have something wrong with them in relationship to the pursuit of what's best like I'm not smart enough I'm not attractive enough. I'm not charismatic enough. I don't have enough money I don't have enough influence like there's going to be impediments and God's response is I don't care what your impediments are You can overcome them.
2: That's That's your challenge. How do you overcome bitterness and contempt in a relationship? Mm -hmm. You'd have to figure out every single problem, right? You'd have to go down to the bottom with every single problem. If we
1: have an interpersonal issue, let's say it's come up a couple of times so that I, I can be sure it's there. Neither of us are going to want to broach it particularly. And the reason for that is that as you delve into something like that, you go into the inferno. Often when the hero sees the monster, the first time he'll turn tail and run. And usually what'll happen is people will cry, insult each other, or they'll further the fight, or they'll run out of words, and they just stop before they actually solve the problem. And then you might ask, well, why are people afraid to delve into it? I was out with my friend, John Pepperd, who was an ornery guy who ended up in the My first boyfriend. Ranks. John was very funny, very tough kid. Like very, <laughs> very witty. four or something. Char- charismatic kid. And uh, we were on some gravel, and I had my hand down on the gravel for some reason, and he stopped the 10-speed on my hand. And he did it by accident, but it tore it up pretty badly, so all three of my fingers were oh. torn to rat shit. And when we started to fight, Andrew Cox the first thing he did was grab my oh, hand oh. twist the hell out of it and um anyways that ended badly and I got harassed about being beat up by this little rat of a kid for like a year so which was <laughs> definitely that's not dirty. the least bit of fun no yeah. so now you know yeah well you know what goes around comes around
2: Hey. Okay, well welcome back to my podcast Thank you for being here. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Good to see you, In your house and everything. Yeah, wow, a house. Mm-hmm. Nice podcast studio. Thanks. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. spent a lot of time choosing wallpaper. Like <laughs> a lot of my life is gone from choosing wallpaper. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of wallpaper. Well, well I think it was good. worth it. It's good oh. to have your priorities right. Thanks. Jordan actually chose this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Well, thank Even you. Even though Jordan chose it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, so I took a bunch of questions from my audience, said you guys were coming on. And so I think we're just going to roll through as many questions as we can get through, which should be like three. We'll see. We'll see. Carrie, okay, you ready? We're going to start with an easy one. Uh, Bob Dylan or Tom Waits?
0: Hmm. Well, Jordan would say Tom Waits. You better say Tom Waits. <laughs> I'd say hmm, Tom
2: that's Waits. That's a hard
0: one, but we do listen to a lot of Tom Waits. And Not
2: so much Bob Dylan. So, I, that's so you're staying middle of the road, but <laughs> but Tom Waits. I'm going with Tom Waits. Bob Dylan. Tom kind Waits of-
1: has way more good songs. Like almost every Tom Waits song is good, and there's like there's a lot of them, and he's profound, and yeah, he's great. And Tammy pointed him out to me just to
0: make really? clear. Yes. Yeah. When I was a young woman, I used to go to record stores and choose records by their covers, and I chose a. Tom Waits album, and uh, took it home and put it on and thought,
2: "Wow, you would what? choose this. You would choose albums by their cover." Yeah, that's, that's well. That funny. there was a lot
1: of that in the seventies. Really? Yeah. Well, how else were you going to oh, know? Nice oh, big how were you going to know? You took. We bought True. a lot of random albums. Everybody's album collection had like a large proportion of duds in it. <laughs> Plus, the other things that record companies used to do too, which was hyper annoying, was they'd put one good song on a collection of like thirty clunkers. So we <laughs> yeah. we had to make mixtapes too, which took a lot of work, right? Because we were recording on cassette tapes. So making a mixtape was a many hour job. And part of your reputation as a teenager was definitely dependent on the quality of your mixtape.
2: We we made mixed CDs. People don't do yeah. that at all anymore. Everything's no. just Spotify. Yeah, playlist. Playlists oh, they make playlists yeah. that's yeah. easy though oh yeah, even it's... burning a cd was kind of a pain and you had to download off like lime wire or something
1: yeah well we had to do it with records so you had to borrow your friend's records too, yeah that's playlists. worse mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. so like a good mixtape that was a valuable item
2: you give that to who you have a crush and on you had
1: to pick your you had to pick your cassette properly too and Part of your reputation as a teenage boy was whether or not you knew the difference between the different grades of cassette tapes. Mm-hmm. They made good crumbium, Christmas presents. They did. They yeah. did mix tapes. Yeah. Well, we, we gave CDs out as Christmas presents for a while. Yeah. Mix tapes, mm-hmm. Western blues. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because we collected a lot of old Western music in Boston. Because mm-hmm. in Boston, when you were a kid, you could go down to the vinyl shops and you know buy records for fifty cents. They weren't worth anything, and so I collected a lot of old Western music. And sometimes that was from the covers too, because Mm -hmm. the cheesier the cover, the better the song. It's basically the rule for Western vinyl.
2: Hey guys, if you didn't know, my dad's going on tour for his upcoming We Who Wrestle With God book. If you guys like the biblical series on YouTube, you're going to love this. Tickets are available at jordanbpeterson.com. And honestly, if there are any of the lectures you guys should go to, it's one on this tour. It could change your life. Listening to Dad's lectures brought Mom closer to God, and I think that's what he's hoping to do for people. I'm not sure what other lecture you can go to that's trying to deliver that. Mom's going to be opening for him, and hopefully I can come along to some of the shows, but we'll see how baby George and my sleep feels about that. Tickets are available at jordanbpeterson.com for shows in the U.S. starting in February. There are also meet and greet tickets still available. I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, going in a completely different direction... Uh, how to adapt to submitting to your partner when you're a stubborn, strong-minded woman? I guess that's for me. (laughs) Says the stubborn, strong-minded woman.
0: (laughs) Okay, what do you think? Well, I think you have to negotiate with your husband, first of all. You have to negotiate when you're going to have a date, and then you have to honor that. And the way you honor that is when the day comes that that's the day of the date, you have to make sure you're rested, and it's up to you. It's not up to anybody else to take that time. It's up to you. and. Why did you assume this was about sexual submission? uh, (laughs) I didn't. I thought we were going (laughs) to (laughs) dance.
2: Mom wins that round. Yeah, you do. Good one for
1: you. Good one, Tammy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's... (laughs) <laughs> the idea of submission, like part of this strong woman thing here that this questioner is tangled up in is there's no submission in a relationship if you have any sense. Nobody submits. That's ridiculous.
2: well in the in the Bible, I think she's referring to the in the Bible when it says submit. To yeah, your but
1: submit in the biblical context is a very complicated
0: notion. And it's, it's not just women to men, it's men to women too.
1: well, it, it's also predicated on the idea in the biblical corpus that if you're married properly, your husband has already submitted himself to, well, in the Jewish tradition, to the Mosaic commandments, to the prophets and the law, and in the Christian tradition, that he submitted himself to the ultimate authority of Christ. And so, it isn't that you're submitting to your husband, it's that you are placing yourself in a hierarchy that's aimed at the highest possible
0: Yeah, aim. so between the two of you, you're submitting to the marriage,
1: Yeah. and uh, what's
0: best for the marriage. Yeah, and the
1: marriage is a sacrament, and... That means that it's a marriage under the under the auspices of Christ and God. And what that means is that you're both aiming up. You're both acting in each other's best interests and your own best interests, but in the highest sense, and that your communication is based on logos, which is the divine word, which is truth. And so if all that is happening, there's no submission ex- except in, in a really narrow sense. So,
0: you're submitting to to what's best
1: yeah you're sacrificing what's lowest to what's highest and that's a submission of sorts but really what it is is a it's a disciplining of your whims because when you say you want something that isn't really accurate generally what you mean if it's a selfish desire is that some whim in you some short-term whim that's only operating for immediate hedonic gratification has got you in its grip. And you think, well, this is what I want. It's like, yeah, that's one way of looking at it, but a more accurate way of looking at it is that something in you wants it and you've submitted to that. And so you're not supposed to do that. And so partly what you do in a marriage, if you have any sense, is that you help each other organize your wants and needs in a proper hierarchy that's oriented up And then you might ask, well, what does it mean up, you know, because that would be the moral relativism standpoint. Well, you know, up is a matter of dispute or a matter of contention, which is also complete bloody rubbish. Because up is partly an emergent property of what will sustain your relationship over time. So if you're interacting with the same person multiple times and you submit them to your whims or you use power, That whole relationship is going to go south in no time flat. They're going to get bitter and resentful and work against you. And and even if they do submit, they're going to do it begrudgingly. And so that's certainly going to do your love life in, in about five seconds flat. And so you're submitting to a pattern of attention and action that enables you to engage in optimized reciprocal interactions across a very long span of time. There's nothing arbitrary about that. It's the same thing that kids do when they make a friendship. So what kids mm-hmm. will do when they come together is they, one kid will offer the other a game. And the first rule is you offer the game. And the second rule is the other person has to want to play.
0: That's okay? the negotiation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's the beginning of the negotiation
0: yeah. mm-hmm. to agree
1: on the game and yeah. to get, to agree on the aim. Well then you have to see if it's fun to play with that person, which means all the micro games within the game are also voluntary and aimed in the proper direction, which would be at least keeping the fun going, and then at a higher level, keeping the relationship going. And so then when a child chains games together with a person, that's the beginning of friendship. So a friendship is a game of games, right? And then there's an ethos that's associated with the friendship that would have to do with trust and respect that without which those repeated interactions are no longer desirable. And so that's all what constitutes up. And if you have any sense, you submit to that, because yeah. why wouldn't you, If you especially once you understand it?
2: And I think there's a lot of talk in the red-pilled sphere that's very popular online, that's if you're a man and you're in a relationship with a woman, they should listen to you because you're the man. And it's basically as simple as I that. See, I see. And what you're saying is in the Bible, it's it's submit to a higher good.
1: Yeah, well, the man is supposed to reflect Christ, but so is the marriage. And I don't know if the red-pilled guys are doing that. Well, <laughs> they're not doing that if they if any of the submission is based on power. Because one mm-hmm. of the things that's made staggeringly crystal clear in the biblical corpus, Moses is punished dreadfully for using power, even though he's a great leader, right? He is... He is condemned to death before he enters the promised land because he uses power when God tells him to use his voice. Yeah. Right. And then the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers who are Christ's paramount enemies are, and that also goes for the Romans as well. They're, at least in part, people who use power, force, and compulsion instead of negotiation, voluntary negotiation towards a higher good. So the notion that the Judeo-Christian tradition, for example, is patriarchal in that it justifies the use of masculine force, that's, that's utterly preposterous. There's nothing about that that's even vaguely true. And you see that in part, too, because, well, first of all, right when the biblical corpus opens, one of the first pronouncements is that both men and women are made in the image of God. Right? There's an absolute insistence in that. And then, you know, the feminist critics will say, well, yeah, but Eve is cast in a bad light. It's like, yeah, so is Adam. Yeah. Eve, Eve takes the first bite, but Adam submits yeah. to her temptation in a second and then he blames her for his faults, which men do to women all the time. You know, and vice versa. I mean, we're pretty good at that both ways. but And then in the Christian tradition, I mean, Christ treats women as... Of equal value in a Mm -hmm. radical manner Mm -hmm. throughout the entire corpus of his ministry which is really when we have any documentation of his actions and he he takes a lot of flack for that so no there's no submitting cool plus it's impossible anyways you try to get a woman to submit like good luck it's just not possible
2: not for very long they're slippery Who got Jordan Uggs? I posted a picture fo- a picture of us for Christmas. I was like, this is such a nice family photo. And you were wearing your green silk pajamas. No, oh, no. And that's all anybody talked about. Yeah. It's yeah. like the, when I didn't it didn't even occur to me when I was posting it. It's it my Hugh like, Hefner fantasy. Yeah, that that got mentioned a lot. It, I'm sure and it then did. The yeah, Uggs I thought just, that yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I thought that was funny. I was looking through robes and I thought, Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> oh, this green, was on purpose. Green satin, that's that's just perfect. Yeah, well, you got to have a sense of humor, you know.
0: He wears them all the time. It's not just funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but
1: you like them.
0: Yeah, they're all right. Yeah, see?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I knew They're she soft, I, you know, know, they're nice.
2: They're shiny. Mm-hmm.
1: Shiny, just like, yeah, I know it's easy to attract a crow.
2: Yeah. <laughs> okay, a bunch of people asked about this uh, in different forms, but it's about how to have emotional control. So a lot of people are having trouble controlling emotions so suggestions on how to keep emotions under control mm, pause you know you don't you don't keep them under control necessarily what you do is you
0: notice that you have something that is in discord so you have an emotion about it right so you're responding you're reacting to something emotionally you pause and you and you don't say anything because now you're in a place of the unknown Chaos. right you're in the place of the unknown mm. and so you have to wait until you can see what the next right thing is to do and, um, it, and you can be really out of control upset and the best thing you can do for yourself right then is to breathe and wait and just try to keep it steady and figure out, listen and listen.
1: So it's negative emotion that people are talking about rather than emotion per se, because nobody's that worried about a sudden outburst of good humor. Or joy. So, right, right. (laughs) So, you know, although that can get you in trouble. But Carl Jung said, emotion emerges where adaptation is weakest, and that's associated with the idea of chaos. And so if we're talking and you say something that disrupts the flow of conversation and causes an outbreak of emotion, that reveals some impediment or obstacle to our further communication, maybe with regard to the topic that we're discussing, or with regard to our broader relationship. And the emotion is actually, it's an indicator of some element of the territory we both inhabit that hasn't been mapped properly. And so the emotion comes up as a warning, and it says, unknown thing happening, unknown and threatening thing happening. And then it it doesn't it doesn't it's not necessarily much more specific than that and then it can take a lot of work to figure out exactly what the problem is Mm -hmm. right and and, but that's what you want to do is you want and you don't want to jump to the conclusion for example that you're right and the other person is wrong which would be highly convenient and easy for you (laughs) and and you can understand why people would want to do that because it's the least amount of effort but The reason you shouldn't do that is because it's possible that you're the idiot. And then you might even ask, well, even if I am the idiot, if I can convince the other person that they're stupid and wrong, why shouldn't I do that? And the answer is, well, you might be an idiot with other people too, and with yourself. And so if you don't fix the problem, then you're going to fall into the same hole repeatedly. And what the negative emotion is, is actually an alarm system telling you that there's a hole, and that is a hole... Where chaos reigns where things are happening that you don't understand or expect. So it's a It's a prerequisite to further exploration It's very common in hero mythology one of the things you see is that the hero will be on a quest and a quest is always for the thing that's valuable and so We're always on a quest because always with every glance of our eye We're on a quest and it's very common in hero mythology which I suppose represents the larger And more dramatic quests that when the hero first encounters the dragon let's say the monster the giant dragon is usually like an image is usually an image of the of nature gone astray and a giant is usually an image of culture gone astray Hmm. and and so those are the two major quests right to to confront and reconstitute pathological structures of adaptation that's sort of the anti-patriarchy ethos and then to confront nature and and horror in its base form. So a gigantic dragon would have aspects of both of those. In any case, often when the hero sees the monster, the first time he'll turn tail and run. You see this in the Pinocchio story, for example, too. Pinocchio goes down into the depths to find God, essentially, the God that has died in the depths, in the most chaotic and dangerous possible place. And he's pretty resolute in his determination to do that in an attempt to transform. But when he actually confronts the whale in the depths, initially, it's like, hey, well, man, I'm out of here, you know? And that's very common. And you see, that, you see that very commonly when an emotion arises. It's the emotional rise, it's negative, it's anxious. And people's first attempt is to, first reflex is to say, you know, this isn't happening to pretend or to pretend that it's not necessary to delve into it. And then you might ask, well, why are people afraid to delve into it? And this is where you can learn to understand something like Dante's Inferno. So if we have an interpersonal issue, let's say it's come up a couple of times so that I I can be sure it's there. It's not just some random fluctuation in your mood or that you were hungry or that I was hungry, you know, something trivial. Mm. It's happened a couple of times. So I know there's something there. Okay, well. Neither of us are going to want to broach it particularly, and the reason for that is that as you delve into something like that, you go into the inferno. So Dante illustrated hell, nine layers, with some terrible thing which was satanic at the bottom, right? Sort of evil itself. And if you take any issue that produces negative emotion, like an issue that actually exists, and you decompose it completely, you'll go all the way to the bottom. Right. And and part of the reason for that is that, like, anything threatening is reflective of threat and vulnerability itself. Right. So it's like it's a single manifestation of something central and a relatively trivial manifestation. Maybe there's many. But if you delve into it deeply enough, you come up against the problem per se. One of the things you find with, with people, if they have an interpersonal conflict, and you delve deeply into it, you often find an act of betrayal at the bottom. Someone betrayed them at some point, and they have a memory of that, right? And you could think of that as a semi trauma, depending on its depth, but they'll have a memory of that. And Dante put the betrayers at the bottom of hell. And the reason he did that was because human interactions that iterate across time are dependent yeah. on trust. And what someone who betrays you does is entice you to trust them. So they take your best instincts because trust is a form of courage and it's a predicate for society and then they turn it against you, right? And so, right, right, right. So threat emerges, you get negative emotion. If you dig into it, you spiral down, 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 down till you get to the bottom of things. And that's what people say. I'm going to get to the bottom of this, right? Yeah, well, Jesus... Sometimes, man, that's a long way down. And, and people just can't stand it, you know, because they'll start talking to each other and they'll go down one rung at a time. Uh. And every time they go down, because they're getting closer to the ugly truth, more and more emotion emerges. And usually what'll happen is people will cry or they'll insult each other or they'll further the fight or they'll run out of words and they just stop before they actually solve the problem. It takes a lot of fortitude to get to the bottom
2: there were there was so a- Vir-
1: so one more thing Virgil guides Dante through the inferno and that's a kind of a reflection of the idea of the holy ghost so the holy ghost element of the trinity the holy ghost is the spirit of truth that's a good way of thinking about it scientists who observe their data sets properly are guided by the spirit of truth otherwise they they just twist and bend the data to suit their career, for example. so imagine that you're oriented towards the truth. okay, so now you have an aim, and that calibrates your emotions and it calibrates your judgment. and so if you're trying to mediate an interpersonal dispute and you have the right goal in mind, so the right goal might be peaceful, continued, productive, generous, harmonious existence, right then your emotions will calibrate, so you can tell when the conversation is deviating from that aim. And if you're forthright in your aim, you can use your judgment to descend down, and you can stay oriented while you're doing it.
0: Yeah, and plus it right. isn't so personal then, because you've decided that the aim is truth. Yeah. Then what you bring to truth is uh, subordinate to that, and it's it's less focused on you as an individual. Because you are a collective of people who've all made the similar errors over. Well, you're also
1: not trying to demonstrate your moral superiority no. while trying to solve the problem, because that won't go over well. So, that dissent, even if it's between two people, has to be a dissent that's predicated on mutual humility. If you're a yeah. therapist, for example, and you're guiding someone through that, there's a very high probability that you're going to encounter all sorts of terrible things about yourself, even as a therapist, while you're walking the person down that pathway. And you have to do it, with, especially as you go deeper and deeper, you have to do it with extreme care. And, you know, you can imagine that, well, if you're a therapist, for example, maybe you want to show what a good therapist you are. And so you want to take over the process. You know, that's just a sin of pride. It'll take you off the course. And then especially when you start to get deeper into things, you'll be in real trouble. Because the, the deeper down you go, the higher the price you pay for any sin that will knock you off the right path. You have to step carefully.
2: If you don't have an air purifier, get one. It's like dieting for your lungs, except it's easier than dieting. We're breathing in so many chemicals, mold, bacteria, mold all the time and filtering your air is the laziest thing you can do to clean your environment. So if you're not doing it, there's really no excuse. I use Air Oasis filters all over our house. They filter down to a smaller particle size, 0.003 microns than most air purifiers, which makes a massive difference. They're quiet too. I also bought them for Scarlet School to help reduce virus transmission because little kids are icky. They have a medical grade H13 HEPA filter to trap dust, pollen and smoke. Aeroasis iAdapt Air uses germicidal UV technology to constantly sterilize itself and the environment so the filter doesn't get moldy. It has a silver ion filter that penetrates the cell membrane of mold, bacteria and viruses. It reduces pathogens by up to 99% in the air you're breathing. These things also come with free shipping, a lifetime warranty, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Get 10% off your purchase by using code MP at checkout and by going to the link in the bio, which is airoasis.com slash product slash iadaptair dash large. But that's linked in the comments. Enjoy the rest of this episode. There, there was another question anyway that had to do with this, which was how do you overcome bitterness and contempt in a relationship? Mm-hmm. Which is <laughs> you have to like, you'd have to figure out every single problem right you'd have to go down to the bottom with every single problem yeah well yeah I think well 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 you I
0: I would take I would take the most uh recent the most recent first
2: (laughs) start with the
0: recent one the most the most recent and uh, that that stand out for you as problems so outline all of those and when you've gone through all of those then maybe a few We'll months later over. you'll want to go again and this time you'll go deeper and mm. maybe further back in your history and so you don't do it i wouldn't if you did it all at once it would it'd be, it'd be yeah. a very long time mm-hmm. and exhaustive would be too difficult so well yeah. also
1: there'll be classes of problems like you have to eliminate all of the issues but that doesn't mean you have to address every single thing that happened mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there'll be classes of things that happen and so now so Especially as you go down, you'll notice the classes. Well, going down is noticing the classes. That's exactly it. So imagine there's a lot of individual occurrences, right? But then if you go a level down, you can see, well, these five occurrences were part of this. So now you go down one level and you see there's this clump and this clump. And then you go down another level and you say, oh, these two clumps are this clump. Right, well, then you can go down. This is kind of what psychoanalysts do instead of behaviorists. The behaviorists will stay on the periphery and deal with things one by one like very minute, practical, specific issues. The psychoanalyst will go deeper and say, these 20 things are a reflection of this underlying concept, which could be Mm. implicit or unconscious, because some of this is a delving into implicit or unconscious structures. Sometimes those are revealed in dreams or in fantasies. So you do have to address everything that's between you in a relationship, but that doesn't mean you have to go through every bloody thing that ever happened in the whole relationship. You do have to solve... See, the psychoanalyst would have called those clumps complexes. And sometimes when you go down into the substructure of someone's psyche, you'll find, you know, that they have a key problem with the world. Like I had one client, for example, who really was paranoid about authority, like really verging on, on true paranoia. Well, when we got to the bottom of one of her experiences, she told me a story about having been put in a hospital when she was five and being subjected without her parents being around because at that time parents weren't allowed to visit their children in hospitals because the doctors at least said that they felt that the continued separation was worse than just one separation That's so. Stupid. yeah well it was very self-serving of the physicians but in any case that was her situation she had a sadistic nurse.
2: Oh no. Right.
1: So she was just tortured in the hospital by this sadistic nurse. And so that permanently destroyed her trust in institutions and fed a paranoia that infected all of her relationships. I get that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, sure. you You can see exactly how that would happen. Now, hypothetically, if you can go down there and address that fundamental distrust, then all of the Specific manifestations will also disappear, but it's very complicated because, it, see, as you go down to the center, you're dealing with more and more archetypal issues. So, one of the things you could say about the situation she was in was that she was archetypally confronting the evil uncle of the king, the evil brother of the king. So, every hierarchy has a shadow. The shadow is what the left wingers always point to it's all about power. It's like, no, it's only all about power when it gets corrupt. It's a very important distinction. But the claim that power can corrupt and twist and bend, and that it might even be the primary dementing phenomenon, that's dead on right. Well, so she encountered a negative manifestation of authority. It's the same as the evil uncle, it's Scar in The Lion King, fundamentally. Or the evil advisor of the... Like Jafar in, 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 what is it, Aladdin. Yeah. That character's everywhere. The evil advisor of the king who wants to be king himself. Luciferian intellect, usually, that utilizes mm. power. Well, that's what she came up against when she was five. That nurse used authority to, she, subor- she, she subordinated authority to whim. She was sadistic. She enjoyed hurting other people and she used her authority to do that. And so that five-year-old kid came face to face with something that's like darkly evil. And it it that was the trauma. And most people who are traumatized are traumatized by malevolence, right? By 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 like the voluntary desire to hurt. She certainly encountered that. She didn't know what to do about that when she was five. So it it really put a warp in her whole life.
2: Uh, I feel like like you said, a lot of people encounter this and that's what traumatizes them. What are you at? What point is what you experience reality though? So, say, I mean, there are people in positions of authority that abuse authority. We've obviously seen that in the last number of years with the government overreaching and things. Uh, so, at what point is At what point do you just view... I think I have an issue with this. Mm -hmm. Like if I see people in positions of authority, particularly in the medical industry, the mainstream medical Mm -hmm. industry, Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. think you've been taught to think you know everything and that makes you more dangerous than the average person. Mm -hmm. Right? Well, what point is that just true? More often than not.
1: Well, that's a constant... That's a constant, what would you say, uh, challenge to judgment. Right? I mean... The the general rule, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is part of the problem with populist conservatives. You know, when 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 a populist conservative gets up and says all the institutions are rotten, like he's that far away from like a postmodernist radical, and so you're always separating the wheat from the chaff in your evaluation of. Authority structures and partly what you do is differentiate them, you know You might say well the whole medical profession is corrupt But you don't actually believe that you meet doctors from time. To, well, so You have to differentiate your view and I that's you complex you have to
0: become uh, You have to become informed you have to become more and more informed if you have that view because the view is vague mm. Right, so when I was 17 I was working in a pool. I needed to uh, there was a, a rule that was being not followed. The, these little kids were too short to be in the pool, so the pool was too deep, and I didn't want to let them in without extra people in the pool. And I asked the schools to to give me extra people, and the next week they came, and they didn't bring them, and I closed the pool. Hmm. And the the town council called a meeting, and they called me in, and they asked me why I turned the school away, and I told them why.
2: Weren't you picking up kids out of the pool? Yeah,
0: well, there were kids that were, you know, when little kids can't, when anybody can't swim and they get under the water, they just look at you because they don't know what to do to get back up. So they don't move their limbs. They just look at you. So here we were we're on the deck going, that one's underwater, that one's underwater. And I thought, like, this is not a good idea. (laughs) And I'd worked in that pool, but I hadn't worked with these little kids At school time, so I hadn't realized just how deep it was and how dangerous it was. And it was an old pool built in 1967 when the last expo was on. They built swimming pools all through Canada. Yeah, in all the little towns. Anyway, I went to the town council meeting, and I said that I couldn't run the pool the way that they wanted me to run the pool. I needed this uh, safety measure put in place. And they said, uh, well, they (laughs) they didn't think that that was a reasonable request, and... Uh, Asked me to just run the pool the way they wanted to, and I said, "Fine, you can sign a paper telling me the way you want me to run it, and I'll go back and I'll run it that way." Just to try to bring it home to them that now, okay, so you're well. And one of the councilors said
1: said to you, he was annoyed that he was being put on the spot, and he said, "You'd let some of the one of those kids drown just to get us, right?" So and I
0: was seventeen, and I quit the my my job because I felt um well i was betrayed. i felt betrayed right and that betrayal made caused cynicism for government yeah, establishments for, for, so i didn't vote i for quite a while uh, i didn't want anything to do with any government authority of any kind and that went on well, and she was always for years annoyed if you know
1: if i evinced any sort of political ambition yeah I was. and like, she yeah. would say things like it's
0: all like the small town no, and, I would say, I'm going to become a cartoonist and do caricatures. Oh, I remember yeah, well, that. Th-
1: that's fine. Well, that, that yeah, was but amusing. That, but, but, but
0: in the same vein, But, but it though.
1: was also, to, to your point, she was also right. Yeah. Like, the corruption she saw at that small town level, that, yeah. that cynicism, that unwillingness to... to Think? Adore, well, to adopt proper responsibility. The willingness to throw her under the bus, because this actually became a bit of a scandal did your dad write the newspaper
0: no i wrote him and the the mayor
1: wrote right you and it was published in the newspaper yeah right right wow yeah 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 yeah, right right Mm -hmm. so now so but tammy's observation that the corruption that she saw in the local council was the same as the corruption at every level was accurate but the the response isn't Well, you know, the entire political (laughs) system is corrupt and needs to be what? Violently overthrown by idiot rebels or that we should descend into a state of anarchy or that you don't have to take responsibility on the political front. It's like the evil. You said, where's the reality? The reality is the evil uncle is always there. Always. But then there's a higher reality than that even, which is the evil uncle that you should really be concerned about is in your heart, right? Right. The Place to address that and this is the one of the fundamental messages at the highest level of the judeo-christian ethic I mean it it definitely points out that Worldly power is subject to corruption But then the answer to dealing with the corruption isn't to worry about the corruption the moat in someone else's eye, right? It's like You're probably not perfect And so if you're concerned about the political system, you should get your act together And then maybe you could take requisite political action in a way that wouldn't be contaminated by power and and hedonism, right? And and the subordination of everyone else to your whim. But that's that's an internal battle. You know, there's a notion of jihad in Islam that's like that. There's a jihad that can be conducted in the world that's more warlike against the unbeliever, right? That can easily translate into kind of like a psychopathic warlikeness. But there's a spiritual jihad that's, An inner battle that's akin at least in principle to the judeo-christian insistence that the fundamental moral struggle is in the soul right not in the political landscape or even deeper that the political struggles are actually reflections of battles that should be conducted in the soul but aren't being and are then therefore externalized so in your marriage you'll hit Bumps with your husband say that repeat. And you might say, well, why are there repeating bumps in my relationship with my husband? And the answer is, well, there's a knot in your soul or in his that hasn't been untied. And so, because the person in whose soul that knot exists hasn't taken the time to untangle it, it makes itself manifest in the world as conflict. And that is how it works. And so it's it's useful and this is this has to do with prayer I suppose with confession as well. One of the things that's very useful if you're fighting with your whoever your daughter, your brother, your sister, your your wife, you want to figure out what the hell you're bringing to it. You know, and you don't do that in a yeah. false humility I'm parading my moral virtue because I'm so good at discovering my flaws sort of way. It's like you got to be afraid of that in the proper way. It's like do you want to have this fight a thousand times or do you want to fix it and if you think through what it means to have the fight a thousand times you get family relationships that are poisoned for decades because people won't
0: because you you go down your children that that's the way to act through your actions and if your actions are filled with say resentment and so that you're that, that's what you're showing your kids are learning that oh this is this is the way my mom's relationship is with her sister so that's that's a family relationship oh so then they start looking you know it start it, imitating it, it just it just keeps going yeah, and going go and going yeah. and you don't you don't want that to go down the generations like stop it now
2: yeah I'm going to pick something more positive.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Look, it is positive. It is, yeah. It is positive. I know it's it's weird, but the thing is, this is the weird thing about, let's say, confession. You can regard the discovery of a devil in your soul as a treasure. Because if you find something that you're really doing wrong, and you actually understand that it's wrong... First of all, you'll understand why you did it in the past, and that's not nothing. But more importantly, you can shed it. And so it's a very, it's, it's one of these moral inversions, you know, like there's an insistence in the gospel texts in particular that the highest serves the lowest, that there's a strange relationship between the highest and the lowest. And one of those strange relationships is that, in a in a sense, there shouldn't be anything more exciting then the discovery of your like the conscious discovery of your own insufficiency because then you can address it and mm-hmm. like if you got really good at that what yeah. that would mean is you'd be getting rid of everything that is causing you trouble and god only knows what your life could be like if you got rid of everything that you could get rid of right that's a sacrifice that's proper sacrifice and you have to be well that's where humility comes in it's like probably a lot of me needs to go and but in the back of your mind, it should also be well. That's probably better than all of me.
2: Yeah. Just think of
0: all the new right, that's going right. To that's right. Bloom.
2: That's right. Exactly that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What happens when you're freed from that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It that's took... the re- that's the resurrection in the death. Mm-hmm. I think it took me because you both like told Julian and I when we were little. Like, tell the truth. That's the most important thing you can do is tell the truth but it's really hard to understand. Mm -hmm. And even having you guys as parents, it's still really hard to understand, especially if you tell the truth and you get in trouble as a kid because then it's pretty Mm -hmm. obvious Mm -hmm. like, well, this doesn't seem to be going well Mm -hmm. um, before you can really think about it or see any long-term repercussions. Mm -hmm. I think it wasn't until I was... And then, so it was probably... I, I probably knew more solidly That it was important to tell the truth by the time my brain developed. I was probably 23 where I was like, no, I've seen the repercussions of lying. Telling the truth is important. But then I didn't realize that also not saying what you thought was also not telling the truth. So then it took another, it -hmm. took another like four years, maybe. So maybe 27 be like oh okay also all the thoughts i have that i'm not saying that is also not telling the truth and those also matter like just as much or more yeah and so the
1: most common sin like classically speaking the church has held that sins of commission are more important than are more uh, deadly let's say than sins of omission yeah so like an outright falsehood is more deadly than avoiding the truth but i'm i'm very I don't know. Torn about yeah, that I because don't know. it probably depends do. what it is. Well, it it does. But but the problem with a sin of omission is they're a lot easier to rationalize. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't have to say anything.
2: It's maybe like maybe I'd hurt people. He, well,
1: you don't run the whole you don't run the whole simulation when you say something like that. It's, well, I don't really have to say anything. You don't think, I don't really have to say anything. But I'll be bitter and resentful and I'll play the role of martyr for the next three decades. Like you just truncate that, right? And so then you're not even viewing the severity of the avoidance. And, and you're right about what kids do. This is why everyone lies. So people lie to gain things that they don't deserve to gain.
2: And they lie to avoid paying a price that they need to pay. That's probably mostly what I did. was to well, avoid. That, that... I was just avoiding things that I thought were bad. Whenever I lied, it was just avoiding like... Well, and it's a
1: short-term strategy. Yeah. And it works in the short term, which is part of the reason that it's so attractive. Kind of. It makes you feel bad. Well, that's because it violates your conscience, right? Yeah. yeah, And your conscience, you could think of your conscience in part as the instinct that calibrates the medium to the long run. So let's say you have to admit that you did something wrong because you're being called on it by your parents and there's going to be trouble. And now you lie and you avoid the trouble. Well, you violate the conscience because the conscience is, is learned. It, it's an instinct as well. It's calibrating the medium to long run. And so it knows that you sacrifice the medium to long run for the present. That in, in your conscience, that's like a definition of what conscience does. It always says to you, you sacrifice the higher to the lower, right? So that's a false sacrifice. That's the kind of sacrifice that Cain makes constantly. And that's why he gets, that's why his life goes to hell. That you're called upon, imagine there's a hierarchy of value with something at the pinnacle, right? And there always is, because even when you're just looking at a specific object, there's something at the pinnacle. You're always organizing your perceptions and actions around an aim. You're always climbing up a mountain of one form or another. Always, always. The, the rule is if you if you're in a hierarchy of value that you sacrifice what's lower to what's higher. That's the nature of progress. A false sacrifice is the reverse. And conscience will tell you when you're making a false sacrifice, because it says, well, you might have skirted some trouble temporarily, but you're no longer climbing up the proper mountain. So, yeah. So I've been been—I've been playing in, in We Who Wrestle With God, in this new book that I'm writing, I've been playing with the relationship between what's sacred and emotion playing i suppose the border between biology and theology and so one of the ways that god makes himself manifest in the old testament in particular is as a calling so you can imagine that there are things that grip your interest and make you enthusiastic right and and they they have a kind of autonomy because you find that you're interested in something or you discover it and it grips you And you can go along with that, and you can follow that. When I wrote Maps of Meaning, that was what I concentrated on most. I have a chapter in there called The Divinity of Interest, and I was developing the idea that one of the golden threads that orients you in your life is things that interest you. That's the burning bush, by the way. Things that grip your interest. You can follow them, and they'll lead you uphill. Mm. But what I've come to understand now, because there was no role for negative emotion in that, God is like the dynamic interplay between the calling and conscience. So the calling says, come this way towards the greatest treasure, right? The treasure's in this direction. And that'll make itself manifest in different places for different people, even though it's all pointing to the same thing. But conscience comes along for the ride and says, you're deviating from the path. You're deviating from the path. And so God is the call of conscience and the, and the calling. It's the interplay between those two things. And I'm, I'm bringing that up because people, they say, well, I, you know, there's no evidence for god you know i can't find god god is dead god has disappeared it's like well you're just you don't see the manifestation and you might say well why call that god it's like well try to escape from your conscience and then try to make yourself interested in things you're not interested in you can't do that there's an autonomy about it and it is it a living spirit at some point, questions like that devolve into a matter of definition. But it's definitely those are both animating spirits. The conscience and calling are both animating spirits. So, for all intents and purposes, not only are they alive, they're immortal, and every, and they're and they're shared by everyone.
2: So, I suppose atheists would just write that off and say that's an evolutionary adaptation. I, f- right in, but the problem in order is a thrive problem or something is like it's that.
1: not but yeah but it's not a write-off i say that's fine have it your way it's like oh so what you're saying is that those two spirits orient you towards like thriving and maximal re- reproductive fitness it's like okay same i don't care have it your way the the practical consequences and even the metaphysical consequences are identical We could take the biological perspective. It's like fair enough. Okay, so that reflects something fundamental about the nature of being Yeah, come to it evolutionarily. Okay, doesn't matter it doesn't matter these things dovetail and Look we do even scientists assume that there's an ultimate unity. It's it's part of the presumption of the Western Enterprise of science is that in the final analysis. There's a unity of comprehension There's a unity of ethic and and material reality. Evolutionary biology and theology will dovetail. If they're both laid out correctly, they'll dovetail. And I think we're very close to that now. Very, very close to that. If if not already having attained that.
2: If you haven't checked out my anti-hangover pill after party, check it out at fullerhealth.com. It helps reduce the negative impact of alcohol on your brain and body. And even if you don't drink often, which you shouldn't really, it should be something that's part of your wellness routine that you just have at your house. If you ever decide to have a glass of wine or more, it reduces symptoms of nausea, anxiety, shakiness, and even helps a bit with sleep deprivation because it works on GABA. Mostly it works by breaking down acetaldehyde, which is what poisons you when you drink. If you do like this product, please leave a review at fullerhealth.com. I love reading the reviews. Code MP15 for 15% off. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Mm. You know,
0: when kids are small and they go to public school, they're taught to learn all. They're taught to learn math. They're taught to learn social studies. They're taught to learn all these different things and to take enough uh, the the same amount of interest in everything that that they have to be doing well in all the different areas. But I've been reading about uh, interest-based education, where you just follow what they want to do. That what they're not what they want to do, but what they, what gives them meaning. So if a kid is really drawn to math or really drawn to art or whatever it is that you capitalize on that and that bringing and keeping that all alive, that's what guides you. Well, it's
1: certainly, so there's an upside and a downside to that. So the upside is that if you can find out what someone is spontaneously interested in, they're motivated. Yeah. Right. And the reason they're motivated... And you don't kill
0: just, the rest of everything because you're making them do things that is more difficult you, for them.
1: Well, that, that's, that's, that's right. Well, what happens if, if you use force is that you, you decrease positive motivation. Yeah. Skinner showed that very clearly with animals, which is why he preferred using reward to punishment. Mm-hmm. So you get all sorts of kickbacks if you use force. So there was a big movement in the 1960s to orient schools around a child's interest. And that turned into child-centered learning. And that was one of the pathways to like the postmodernist catastrophe in education. Mm-hmm. But I think part of the reason for that was that if you, you can't pursue interest without taking into account conscience, it's too positive, right? There's no shadow to it, mm-hmm. right? And so, and I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know exactly how to integrate those things like i said
0: well maybe with interest you have to go very deeply into it very well you have to do it in a disciplined
1: way yeah yeah well you do well so in in this in the exodus story when moses encounters the burning bush he's just doing his normal day-to-day shepherd thing right and he's pretty happy his life's going pretty well but something beckons to him from the side it glimmers and, and 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 gleams and so he goes to investigate it and as he investigates it, he gets closer and closer to it. So you can imagine he's getting deeper and deeper into it, right, as he pays attention. He eventually realizes he's on sacred ground and he takes off his shoes. So as he pursues what he's interested in and he gets deeper into it, he understands that he's approaching what's sacred, what's most fundamental, right? What's, what's at the pinnacle or what's at the base. Either metaphor works. and But he continues in his pursuit And eventually, the voice of God speaks to him, and that's when he becomes a leader. And he's an archetypal leader because he stands up against tyranny and against slavery. And so the moral of the story is is that if you pursue what what calls to you with enough integrity and discipline, you will get to the bottom of things, and that will make you a leader. Now, it's weird. The, The Moses story has got an interesting twist in it, too, because... God speaks from the depths of the burning bush and tells Moses that he has to go back to Egypt and confront the Pharaoh. So now he has to go after the evil uncle. That's a good way of thinking about it. And Moses said, oh, I can't do this. And God says, well, why not? And Moses says, well, you picked the wrong guy. And God says, well, you know, I know who's the right guy. So what do you mean? And Moses said, well, I'm like tongue-tied. I have a speech impediment. I can't speak. And God basically says, he says something approximating maybe two things that's your problem figuring it out Figure it out but there's another implication there which is everybody is going to have something wrong with them in relationship to the pursuit of what's best so standing up against tyranny and again like i'm not smart enough i'm not attractive enough i'm not charismatic enough you know i'm 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 not resilient enough i
2: don't have enough money
1: yeah I, I don't have enough influence like there's going to be impediments and God's response is I don't care what your impediments are you can overcome them that's That's, that's right that's right well and you know it it isn't also necessarily a weakness you know because it's something you have to contend with but it's going to be something that a lot of other people share now the way Moses deals with it is he enlists his brother Aaron so this is another great lesson it's like Your job is to go stand up against tyranny and to rescue yourself and other people from the habits of slaves and to move towards the promised land and there's a bunch of things about Doing that that you're going to be pretty useless at and so you should recognize them but then in recognizing something else happens, which is very interesting, which is There's a lot of other people around, you know, you could you could enlist their services and then there's something for everyone else to do and that's also a really useful thing to know, to take the kind of messianic mania out of that archetypal idea. Like if you're seized with the idea that you have this mission, you know, to free the world from tyranny and to, and to decrease people's slavish habits, then that's all on you. Well, that's a crushing responsibility and it's a pathway to kind of manic grandiosity, right? But if you understand that that's true for you, but it's not true for you al- alone, and that there's plenty of things along the way for absolutely everyone else to do with the same degree of seriousness, well, then you've got the equation approximately right. And that can also help you, like if you're running an organization. It's like, it's okay if other people have important things to do too. There's no, you are not gonna run out of important things to do. No matter how many you distribute to other people, there's gonna be plenty of things for you to do. Right. and so that's such a relief to know that yeah I learned that about 20 years ago I guess you know because I'd been dealing with the problem of evil for a long time and it felt like a crushing responsibility especially as I came to understand it more and more deeply and I thought well I have the, an understanding that appears to be in some ways I wouldn't say unique but unique enough so that when I'm sharing it it has a effect on people I thought well I don't know you know like what am i supposed to do about that that seems like too much to deal with and it was at that time too that i realized it's like well if it's too much for you to deal with you're not sharing the responsibility enough like by definition by definition
2: and you know that you've built organizations is that as you scale them up oh you can't grow that's because you do reach your capacity right and you you just you cannot grow unless you enlist help with with other right and then what
1: you want to do is you want to so I talked to uh, Frank Stronach about running Magna you know he keeps his factories at a certain size I think it's two or four hundred I don't remember which but what he does is he separate he sets people up with their own independent fiefdoms he says this is yours it's 90 like we're still associated but this is your thing and like if you can make it great and you can grow wonderful yeah that's not it's not a zero-sum game and that's a lovely thing to understand too. It's very generous. It's a, you can operate in the world in a very generous fashion. Once you realize that here's something else that's cool. You know, I worked with Bob Peel for years. Bob was a great graduate supervisor and there was, was a real contrast between him and many other professors because Bob was 100% generous with his ideas. Like I'd go into his office and talk to him and I did that like twice a week. We talked a lot and we would share ideas and I can generate plenty of ideas, but Bob could generate plenty of ideas and he didn't care what happened to his ideas. And if he had a graduate student who grabbed an idea and then you know, came up with an experiment and ran with that, then they got the authorship and that helped develop their career. But here's something cool, and you can, you can, this just makes perfect sense. So imagine there's a biological process that's operating within me that's generating ideas. Okay, now, and it can grow or shrink. Okay, If it's rewarded, it's going to grow. And if it's going to grow, it's going to produce more ideas. And if it's punished, it's going to shrink. Okay, so now my attitude is I have no faith in that source, fundamentally. I think it's exhaustible. And so now I'm stingy as hell with my ideas. Mm. And partly that makes other people suspicious and doubtful. And so every time I share an idea, something negative happens. Well, do that for five years. And even if you had the goose that laid the golden eggs to begin with, It's not laying any eggs. By contrary, by contrast, you're a creative person. You just give those ideas away freely and you get a tremendously positive response. That's a very rewarding response. All that does is make that capacity grow and all that happens is that you produce way more ideas. That's why Christ says that he's a well that's inexhaustible fundamentally. That's that's what that's pointing to, is that you can't, deplete what you have by sharing it properly quite the contrary the better you are at sharing what you've been what's been granted to you as a gift a talent the better you are at sharing that the more it's going to thrive and that's a great thing to know too because like you, you couldn't want a better solution
2: than that i think i think i i agree with that in the mostly i think the skepticism i have is I really don't like to see people. And this might be, I just realized this a couple of days ago, because yeah. you worked with some people and you had a brilliant idea and you kind of gave it to them. And they just like took advantage of you and wrecked the idea basically. And I think, I, and I don't know how yeah. much that impacted me, but I thought about it a couple of days ago. So yeah. it must've impacted me a bit. I don't like... Well, it was
1: very unpleasant.
2: Yeah. And I don't like... Like, I think you have to be careful about who you give your ideas to. Because I don't like seeing beautiful ideas taken by narcissistic people and destroyed. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, like, that's the it pearls before like swine
1: problem. And uh, so Christ tells his followers that they have to be as soft as doves, essentially, and as wise as serpents. And like, yep. there is, it's, it's also in biology, that's the, that's the cheater problem, fundamentally. If you have a community of cooperators yeah. and you drop in one shark, the the shark will take everything, and that's the psychopath problem in biology as well. And so you do have to share with judgment. You have to share wisely, and you have to be willing. And
0: you willing. also have to share without ego and without pride, because if your sharing is full, of, then you you won't share in the right moments with the right people. Well,
1: you're also likely to attract more than your fair share of, of psychopathic yeah. responses right. that way too, because if people see that you're sharing for your own self interest and they're the sort of people who are likely to do that, they see your behavior as a justification for or what you get going good people
0: coming, but it doesn't go well. Yeah. Because yeah. it wasn't the right moment yeah. for them to even find Yeah, the you idea. can't be
1: there's a big difference between being generous and being naive. Like yeah. it's, it's a trick, and there's a big difference between being courageously trusting and naive you know so part of the way that i've conceptualized that and this is very useful for people naivety looks like virtuous innocence but it's not it's just naivety when you're if you're naive you will be burned and you'll be burned to some degree Bradley. by someone malevolent right so then what happens is you go from naivety to cynicism Mm -hmm. And it's hard for you to give up your cynicism, because there's an element of it that's wiser than the naivety. And going back to being naive is just like going back to being an infant. It's not an improvement. It's a deterioration, even though the naivety was trustful and so forth. And it wasn't. It was just naive. Naivety. Cynicism. Courageous faith. Right. And so courageous faith is, I'll cooperate with you. And maybe I'll even do it repeatedly. But I'm going to keep my eyes open and I know perfectly well that there are snakes around right but that but but the Transcendence of the cynicism is once you understand that the snakes are there Then you think well, I could there's just snakes everywhere. I shouldn't trust anyone I should be contemptuous and doubtful about all institutions and that's wiser than naivety especially if it's hard-earned if if the knowledge is hard-earned, but It's not the optimized response, Mm -hmm. the optimized, Mm -hmm. and this has been mathematically modeled as well too. Like, because one of the questions is, what pattern best maximizes the utility across repeated social interactions? And one answer to that is tit for tat. You and I are gonna play a game. I start, I trust you, I open myself up to betrayal. You could betray me and gain a short-term gain you don't you trust me and then we get the thing going now what happens if you betray me the best response is i whack you with proportionate force and then i open the door to cooperation again that's no one has come up there's small modifications of that but no one has come up with a strategy that works better in repeated social interactions than essentially tit for tat but tit for tat with with a bias towards you no know, initial cooperation a guy named robert axelrod figured this out he was interested in the emergence of cooperative strategies because it really is quite a mystery right if if you're in a distrustful situation and you distrust me so you so you're not going to act positively to me and i distrust you so i'm not going to act positively towards you then our responses justify our
2: doubt well, how do we get out of that and how many times do you play that game with somebody when they betray you Like how many chances do people get? Because like when you're a busy person and you have more to lose, like is it once or is it twice? Because I don't think it's, three times is quite a few times. It's quite a waste of time. Well,
1: my rule, the rule that Tammy and I have used in our relationship, at least to some degree too, is like, well, you know, when you're interacting with each other constantly, there's going to be variations in irritability, you know? And so maybe she'll say something to me and I'm snappy. And... We could do the whole Dante's Inferno thing, or we could (laughs) think, well, you know, maybe he's hungry or tired or, and so you have to have some level of writing it off, you know, And, and, and a good rule, and I did this with my clients too, was like, if someone trips over you at work once, it's noise, it's not data. Twice, it's like, then maybe you raise an eyebrow. Three times. You've established a pattern, right? And then you can go to the person. Well, it's also way more effective as a negotiating strategy because then you can go to the person and you can say, this happened yesterday. And their first response is, no, it didn't, or you're imagining things. But then you say, well, yeah, I thought so too, but it also happened here and it also happened here. And it's like the probability that the person can weasel out of that then is like, it's virtually zero. And then you can have the then you can have the conversation. Now you can't get too finger waggy about you no. did this three times, because then there's that moral superiority. And the thing the reason you don't want to do that is because you just don't know why the person is doing that. You know, I I talked to this guy on my podcast just quite recently who he was going to shoot up a school when he was a high school yeah. student. Yeah, yeah, and that's pretty bad. And so and it's obviously unforgivable. But if you listen to his life, you would understand how he got there. Now, but
2: isn't that the same for everyone? Like there aren't, I mean, do you know of any evil, like evil people or people who do evil things?
1: That they don't have a reason?
2: Have, yeah. Yeah. But not everybody goes through yeah, know, immense amounts of suffering and then turns into a psychopath. Yeah,
1: yeah. well, yeah, no, that's so, definitely true. That's there's true.
2: always reasons for people to be evil, but it's, you can't use those for, for reasons to be evil. No, no, no. Well, that's well, and that's,
1: sure. I, well, and I think too, it's like that's sort of the victim-perpetrator yeah. border. It's like at some point you go from victim, justifiably so, let's say, to perpetrator we it's learned, also not that useful to construe yourself as a victim, no matter what happens to everyone's you.
2: Everyone's a freaking victim. Yeah. Well, they—they're alive. Life yeah. is hard. Yeah. Do you remember when, in grade four when we were learning about bullies? I remember at the time I didn't even like this. We we're learning about bullies, and what we learned was, well, if somebody's bullying you, it's because their life is so hard that that's why they're bullying you, yeah, and yeah, you should I, be nice I, to yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, what? I think I also had, you know, I was really sick. Mm-hmm. Things was like hard life I know people right. have hard <laughs> lives like they, they have hard lives it doesn't mean you get to be mean to everybody around right, you right
1: right absolutely yeah
2: yeah, yeah cuz yeah.
0: you were taught that you couldn't use your illness for an excuse
2: really for anything it's also hard to beat up people if you have arthritis yeah it is <laughs> maybe i couldn't i didn't have the option to go to no that's not true, cuz that's not really how girls bully anyway
0: well i think hardship is a it's a challenge it's a challenge to overcome hardship that's what it is it doesn't matter what well it and is.
1: hardship can make you virtuous just like it can make yeah. you vicious certainly yeah mm-hmm. well that's why there's such an insistence in the western philosophical ethos on free will there's no determined nietzsche knew this too he said any any situation is susceptible to a multitude of interpretations like there's a postmodern element to that but there's also you say well he was beat up as a kid and that's why he beats his kids well first of all most people beat as children do not beat their kids and you can think, figure that out mathematically because if mm-hmm. child abuse was deterministic, it would spread yeah. and everyone would do it. And it isn't spread, it's dampened. And so if you are an abuser, there's a higher than average chance that you were abused as a kid. But if you were abused as a kid, the overwhelming probability is that you won't abuse your children. Right, exactly. So it's tricky, right? Because if you go into the history of someone who's psychopathic and they tell you their life story and they're not lying, you think, oh my God, it's no wonder. But then, you know, you meet someone like Charles Joseph who was just tortured to death in 50 different ways and decided, clearly decided that, you know, he was going to do everything he could to let that go, certainly not to visit it on his children and to try to live a virtuous life. You know, like everyone backslides and when you backslide and you've been hurt very badly you backslide into you know martyrdom and and resentment and no bloody wonder but that doesn't mean it's deterministic
2: how can you tell when someone really loves you
0: well it's in it's in the marriage vows through sickness and through health right through riches and through poor and if you're not going to stay through those trials Then there's no left there if you don't want
2: to If you what's don't want to de- stay what's decision. right if you don't want to, it's also
1: a decision like when when we took our vows It was serious So it was a it was a solemn occasion because I, I meant it It was like and I I knew by that time more or less what that meant. It's a hell of a thing to say but And I knew that partly from reading Jung. You know, he he believed that you couldn't make a marriage work without the commitment, like the real full-out commitment, because you can just run away from each other then. You can't solve your problems if you can run away, if the door is open. Because at some point you'll encounter a marriage problem that looks like the problem is worse than getting divorced. Like that'll happen. And so If divorce is an option you just won't solve the problem and the problem is is that there's a problem of that size in virtually every relationship i mean that's the problem of satan fundamentally like there's just no getting away
0: those problems come up though if you don't pursue what's meaningful in your life if you have sins of omission if you do all those things then that is the consequence of that is that you'll find yourself in a place where you think maybe
2: divorce is easier So you don't want to go there. You want to take care of things every week. But then at, at what point is divorce easier? I feel like because there is a point, but then, but then I feel like, okay, so with my experience, maybe if you get to that point, it's because you didn't know the person very well. There's lots of reasons
1: you can get to that point. And you know, I had lots of clients who chose the path of divorce and they often chose the path of We've divorce. We've had family
0: members too. Oh, yes, definitely. Right? Sure.
1: When, when they couldn't negotiate with their partner. Now, there's all sorts of reasons you might not be able to negotiate with your partner. One would be you're not skilled enough as a negotiator. Another would be they're actually not interested in the... You, or
0: you're not suitable. You're just not suitable. Your personalities well, y- are such that... You know, my sister was pretty... I think she's probably pretty agreeable and her husband was super disagreeable. A yeah. kind of a loner yeah. and he didn't negotiate at all. Yeah. And they yeah, grew, often, and they grew
1: apart. Yeah, that's often that often splits men and women. You'll get an agreeable man, woman who's quite feminine and a disagreeable man who's quite masculine and they just there's no grounds to communicate. You know, the guy just goes hmm. <laughs> You know, and maybe he's not very articulate, you know, and right. there's no moving him. And maybe he doesn't even know how to negotiate because people, Christ, people are so bad at negotiating. It's just a miracle. And it's not surprising because negotiation is sort of the opposite of a sin of omission. Yeah, If you're negotiating, you have to confront all the things you want to avoid right now. And no one wants that. It's so annoying. It's like, if I'm negotiating with Tammy, I have to listen to all her problems. You know, Mm -hmm. and it's it's ways you're just to not want to bother with that. But the problem with that is, The problems are there. So like I can wish that they weren't there all I want, but that isn't going to make them go away. So it's way better just to, and I really don't like it.
0: No, but you practice with little things. We practice with little things, daily things that we negotiate. And then if you have to negotiate something that's deep and troublesome, at least you've practiced some of it. Maybe you can do it then.
1: See, I know that she she loves me to the degree that she plays along. And that's a good definition. You know, when when I went to, when we went to um, Florence, Tammy went to Florence to do a a sight-sizing course in Renaissance art. Well, I played along, like wholeheartedly. Well, why? Well, that's like a definition of love. You, You play along with the person you love, and play is the right metaphor. And we've discovered that more and more, especially in the aftermath of our illnesses, like we're we're bet we've always been pretty good at playing along with each other because we played together as kids like that's a pretty standard pattern Yeah,
0: that helped probably yeah
1: definitely definitely we we learned that we could play along with each other when we were very little and that was very very positive thing that was disrupted in teenagehood for you know any number of reasons but you know we've had very serious conversations in the last few years and one of The things we've made even more clear to each other is like she can do whatever she wants i am not interested in getting in her way in the least if i can figure out where she's headed and i can do something to help her with that i'm going to do that and i'm going to assume that will dovetail with what i'm doing and she's playing along with me and you know we we have a weird life and and it's an unbelievable life in many ways and but and we come together now and then and think you know are we going to continue with this particular game and like she's Tammy's always been up for an adventure so it, love is the highest form of play that's true
2: mhm that was nice
1: well, we had to get something positive, didn't we? <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah.
1: Well, you can tell when you can tell when love is in the air because the spirit of play is what's dominating. One one of the things we've been practicing too, like consciously, when we came back together after we were so ill, that was quite complicated because we'd grown apart, and I was still very very ill when I moved home, and it was even worse than that because I was in terrible shape in the mornings, and then I got like more or less. At least to the point of subhuman by ten o'clock at night, and I was sort of—you could stand being around me. And by that time, her clock was exactly the opposite, and she was ready for bed. So that made things complicated. And you know, we came back together around our practice of dating, and that really worked. And that also indicated to us that the core of our relationship was still intact. And you know, and then my health started to improve, and that made things a lot easier. But like, one of the things that we've been striving to do consciously is to con- conceptualize the best of our romantic interactions, our dates, our dancing, our playing, and to see if we can do that all the time, right, to expand that outward so that our attitude toward every day is that every day, like every minute that you spend together could be the perfect date if you oriented yourself properly, at least that's a hell of a good goal.
0: And to spread that out to your community. Right, right. Well, yeah.
1: right, right. If you can do that. And well,
0: to your family at large and to your friends, and you know, yeah.
1: And there's definitely and a spirit of play ability. in that. Yeah, right.
0: Because we were driving down the road and I was thinking, ah, well, we had a little accident a couple of years ago, so now I'm a little bit more tentative about being in the car. And so I thought, so one day I just said, let's try to bring that spirit of play to mm-hmm. the car. To drive, in and my you know.
1: spirit was like hell-bent to the next destination right? <laughs> with every ounce of intensity I could muster. And, and, and so like I'm pretty much pushing the limit on the road all the time because I do that all the time. And, and then I thought, well, oh, probably I could replace that <laughs> for the extra two minutes I was going to gain, certainly now in particular. I mean, when I was younger, I think there was probably more rationale for flat out intensity. But even then, that's that's better than being useless. But it's not optimized.
0: Right. Right. Spirit of play is better.
2: I, th- I think you can tell and generosity. I think you can tell when people love you, whether whether that's like family or significant other, if you can talk to them about your problems and show them who you are without putting on any type of act mm. and have them still enjoy being around you or like that better than whatever act you're putting on so yep. you don't have to yeah. hide parts of yourself for them to love you no so it's that's pretty right. it's pretty obvious when somebody loves you you don't have to be somebody else <laughs>
1: <laughs> you don't have to be the person they would love yes if, if you were them yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah well the the vows are a safety net around that too right because there'll be times when oh when
2: you're not you
1: well also when you have to reveal things that you know, aren't particularly lovable, even to you. And if you have to keep those hidden, you know, and that's complicated. Yeah, well, you because, can't
0: grow and learn if you have to keep them hidden.
1: No, but sometimes you, you can have done things in your life that are oh, so bloody egregious that oh, it see. really is a shock to the other person. Like the kind of, you know, that's especially mm. the case, say, if you've had an affair.
2: Mm. Yeah. You know, how do
1: you, how do you bring that to the other person's attention without demolishing the relationship? Generally, you can't.
0: Well, we haven't had that. Yeah, well, we haven't learned about that. That's good. So I don't know what to say about that. Really, don't do it. That's what I think. Play with your. Well, that's the simple.
1: That's (laughs) the simplest. Yeah, right, 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 Mm -hmm. right. Well, that's another issue with sins of omission too. You know, it's like there's an archetypal, there's archetypal representations of women. You might say that men fall back on when they're not differentiated. One would be virgin, and the other would be whore, right? And wife gets put in the virgin category right? Because who wants to have a whore for a wife? At least that's the shallow conception. And the answer is, well, actually, sometimes that is what you want. But then you have to violate your purity norm, and you have to let some of the female element of this category into this category. And men have a real hard time with that. So they put their wife on a pedestal, and she has to be pure and, you know, virgin mother type. And then that doesn't work because that's An insufficient. It's not what they want either. (laughs) Context is everything. Let's put it that way, right? There's a time and a place for everything, right? And so they'll go looking for the horror elsewhere, you know. And then then there are women who just act that out, and you know that's not good for them, obviously either, because then they just end up used and discarded, and cynical, and psychopathic, and bitter, and and ruined, and that's not a good. So you know, you know. Tammy mentioned playing is like you want to incorporate that other element into your relationship so that that's also satisfied and you have to admit what you want and that's very frightening for people especially it's often frightening sexually for people because that's in that's where you're most naked so to speak right so that's where people's vulnerabilities are really they're right there and so people won't even admit to themselves what they want and then that even makes it worse because if you have sexual desires that you don't admit to that are real as you refuse to interact with them they get bitter and resentful they get twisted they get twisted. oh yeah. yeah they get twisted and grow into all sorts of monstrous underground forms and then you really not can't that we know anything
2: about that yeah
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay I, I i think we wrap this up by we could give people a brief overview of what 2024 looks like for you mm-hmm. for you both well why don't you start what
1: are we
0: doing
2: going on a tour huh. huge tour right yeah huge tour
0: For For months so and why months did you months agree months. to that um well you have a new book mm-hmm. so this will mean new lectures so this will mean new ideas when is that coming out probably in
2: november but we're going to start talking books. about it right away yeah so people are going to hear the ideas yeah yeah before the book comes yeah. out. And so that as as means awesome i have to ideas.
0: think of new things to talk about so that's challenging yeah, And and we're going to have people travel with us. So Paggio
1: has already agreed to. Cool, Jonathan Paggio? Mm-hmm. We're trying to get Douglas Murray to come along too, like he did in Europe. Yeah, He's interested, great to but have he has visa along. trouble for the U.S., so right, right, we'll see right. if we can arrange that. And but there's other so people really that we'll fun. get to come along too. And then
0: we have friends that travel with us, so that so it isn't as lonely. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be in the States, and we know lots of people in the well, States. Well,
1: and you also changed up the tour. We did, but it was really under your... influence so what did you do differently
0: well we have spread out so we have three shows in a row and then we have four days and then we have three yeah otherwise
2: it's just not doable
0: i don't think it's doable so we're going to try this out and see if this four days that we have available takes care of the time we need off the time we need to have dinners with people Podcasts, uh, podcasts and stuff and our
1: relationship being able to yeah. see the places we're in
0: yeah you know it was doable that sounds like four days. we've done it, it for yeah. five
1: years but what we're trying to do one of the things that people need to understand is that if, if something really good is happening to you one of the things you should think through very carefully is first of all you should notice this is unlikely mm-hmm. this good fortune and then you should think okay what impediments are there in the path of this iterating that would accumulate across time? You know, and we've had to work that out on the tour because it got too intense at times. And at some point you think, well, we, I just won't do this anymore. Yeah. But then when you have an opportunity like this, that's an insane conclusion, right? Because it's so unlikely and it's so positive that what that means is you didn't make the right sacrifices along the way. And so now you have to sacrifice the whole damn thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've negotiated along the whole way. And I've tried to listen very carefully to Tammy, too, to see what has to be modified so that she's enthusiastically on board. You know, that meant modifying the schedule. That schedule
2: was crazy. I mean, I opened for you guys a couple years ago Mm -hmm. for like a month. And I was working at the same time, which was, and it was not doable. Mm-hmm. It's like, this isn't even, it was fun. It was really exciting, but I was exhausted in a new city every day. Mm-hmm. So, a flight every day? Oh man. Yeah, yeah. So I think I was on a bus at that point, so I didn't mm-hmm. have to do the flight, mm-hmm. but the bus is easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the four day off, we'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes.
1: And we're going to go to South America. So the 50 cities are in the U.S., we're going to go to central and south america for a week oh cool right. that's yeah. in june? june oh that's june. fun maybe so I'll we have for till that. and then we're going to be at our cottage for most of the summer and fall that's the plan and the fall is still yeah, indeterminate yeah. apart from the fact that the book is coming out plus we're launching peterson academy in february and so that's a that's a big deal and this arc enterprise that has got underway in london will unfold we're planning some regional events major mm-hmm. regional events next year likely in the united states possibly in the middle east so that's exciting
2: um we're gonna do a conference yeah we're gonna do a conference next fall yeah for peterson academy yeah i think so peterson academy but we're still figuring it out we're gonna do a conference me...
1: for sure and under what rubric remains to be determined. Oh, I see.
0: Hmm.
1: Right. So, and I'm very much looking forward to, I'm just about finished my book and two books actually, because it's going to be two books. Um, And I'm very excited about that. So it's, I've had the most fun writing this book of any books I've written. And it's come easiest. And I think I got the balance. I wrote Maps of Meaning. It's very hard. And then I wrote 12 Rules and Beyond Order. And, they're more publicly accessible. This one is just kind of somewhere in the middle. It's harder for sure. It's denser, but it's easier to understand than maps of meaning. And I think that it'll be revelatory. That's the, that's the idea. I don't I cannot see that people will read this book and understand it and like I think it'll demolish the atheistic argument. Let's demolish permanently. his
0: atheism, I guess.
1: Well, that happened a long time ago. Oh, I see. But that'd be wild well you can see it happening already I know. Because, I you think know you there can. are people like ian hersey ali and mm-hmm. neil ferguson and douglas murray who have come to e- either like full-fledged acceptance of a theistic viewpoint or at minimum a deep understanding of the fact that like a moral humanistic endeavor in the absence of an underlying metaphysical foundation isn't that isn't it has no staying power it's weak, it's, it's gonna be blown over immediately by ideology, by competing religious claims, by, by new spontaneous religious forms, veganism or vegetarianism or- Climate. You know, yeah, or nature worship, that's yeah. right, the climate thing, like that's become pretty obvious. So I'm very excited about it and that's partly why we're also so happy to be going on tour because it's going to be very interesting to see the response. And you know,
0: it's, when, it's good that we can still do our podcasts because I really like doing my podcast. I've, yeah, I'm yours has been doing learning really a lot. Well. I really like. Yeah, well, speaking you've
2: with done how now. many? Oh, I don't know, over hundred. a hundred. Yeah, well, you're yeah, gonna yeah. surpass me. Well, you've been busy. Oh my gosh, yeah. You've been busy too. Yeah, you had the baby. No, that's true. The baby makes you really babies. busy. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. no, not that busy.
1: Well, and you've had. Well, that's another thing that's sort of on the table for you. We're going to go back to Italy and both Mm -hmm. of us are much are interested in pursuing artistic endeavors to a much greater degree than we have and
2: like that's something that beckons in the future for me and for you um i told you we're gonna find out you've made money through touring and through your books and things but you're gonna be an artist and that's actually what's gonna be the most valuable thing you do (laughs) that'd be pretty funny that would be pretty funny that (laughs) would be funny i
1: can certainly see that it would be the most fun i mean i've had such a good time making music and that's been just a blast. And Tammy and I have both mm-hmm. really, really enjoyed that. We have really good people to work with. So that's been ridiculously fun. So I could imagine doing that for like 10 years.
2: In music videos?
1: Yeah. Nice. Yeah, And well, and I wrote a screenplay. For, oh, on yeah. A, on Brothers that's, Grimm yeah. story. And Marshall and I and Tammy and Sonia and, and Victor have recorded five or six, six or seven songs for that. And so Marshall's already put them together. So... And it's getting easier and easier to make a movie. Not that that's necessarily a good thing, but it's a more straightforward thing for me, especially if I want to do something animated. So, you know, that's more like a three-year plan. So... So all good things.
0: Yeah, good things. That's right. Grandkids, good things.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, in our various enterprises, like I enjoy working with Julian on Essay, and that's going very nicely. And we're having quite a blast with our various ventures. And Peterson Academy can be huge. Well, it's an adventure. I mean, you know, I'm very happy with the way it's going and so congratulations on that. Thanks. I think you've done a bang up job and we have excellent professors and they're all thrilled to be participating. Yeah, everybody participating. seems very happy Yeah. About that. Oh, and I have we have the Gospel Seminar coming up in beginning of April, right? Yeah. And so everybody's on board with that cuz they were we had a great time when we did the Exodus Seminar. Everybody loved it. And so I everyone I invited back said you know, tell me when it's going to happen and I'll be there. And The Daily Wire has been very enthusiastic about it. And so I'm really looking forward to that because I walked through the Gospels in great detail writing this book. The Gospels so, will be fine. Yeah, well,
0: the book. Yeah.
1: What people can expect from the book is the same thing that they saw in the Genesis lectures in 2017, except
2: much That's wider cool. and much deeper. So that's so, the tour too. It's going to be similar tour. to that. Yes, yes, definitely. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. that's very cool. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I can come along for some of that. I don't know. Well, though. you're welcome. I have too. multiple children now. Yeah, that's right. well, it's a little tricky. See if you can come maybe, along for some of it. Trip. Bring people I don't that. It pretty young. <laughs> he's pretty
1: little. Yeah, but they do well, travel. Bring pretty pe- well, those they, do, guys. they do they do and bring people along that can help you.
2: Yeah. okay. You know, make it work. Make it work, but do come along. Maybe some. Maybe like. Mexico or something would be fun yeah, yeah. We'll, see. It be. well
1: and we'll probably go out on the road again next fall yeah yeah so you know even if you miss the first six months that doesn't I don't think it it doesn't look we'll see how these tickets sell but what so far it's looking good because when we announced the new tour we put the tickets up on sale and some of the venues were 40% sold out within a week mm. without us advertising so if the our sense is, at least so far, like as long as public demand stays high and as long as we have something new to offer, there's no real reason to stop doing this. That's very positive experience and it seems to be good for people and it's helped the ARC thing grow and we've made crazy connections all over the world. We want to extend those into Africa and into Southeast Asia and South America. And
2: Southeast Asia Australia. would be cool. Yep.
1: I'm going to join for that one. Yeah, come
2: to South Korea. Yeah, that mm-hmm. would be really fun. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think I'll that do that be, one for take sure. Take a whole bus yeah. of people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, that would be fun.
2: Yeah, we'll do a big stadium in, in Seoul. Cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you guys both for coming on. What are you Good excited about? What are you excited about in 2024? Oh, I mean, I mean, I'm really excited about launching Peterson Academy. And why are you so interested in that?
1: What does it mean about you know what? Maybe,
2: maybe part of it is you put such an emphasis on needing a degree. You're a university professor. So I grew up, I actually was a bit confused because I knew I wanted to have kids young, and young to me was in my 20s. And I also thought that the best thing I could do for my career would be to get a PhD. Mm. And I remember being like, I was like 18, being like, Yeah, I remember that doesn't really line up. Like, yeah. it doesn't really line up. You can't really have kids in your 20s and get a PhD. It's mm. like, when, how am I going to have time for both? So that was always kind of in my maybe head. Maybe that's a problem and we're going to solve with Peterson Academy. Yes. Like maybe
1: we can offer people PhD-level training if we get this thing really humming. And
2: hundred uh, percent. so
1: that young women could still have children. When they're, yeah. That would be so good. It solves,
2: that would be great. So it, it would solve that problem. But I also, when I went to university, I had such an abysmal time. Like everybody I learned from, I mean, I had you as a dad, that probably didn't help, <laughs> but everybody I learned from was like, this person is not very smart. That's kind of the, and I, I don't think I came from like a haughty place. I was just listening and it wasn't that interesting. And there were things that were pretty wrong. And a lot of it felt like a waste of time. And I took a loan out to go too yeah, yeah. and I was like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And then I had Scarlett and I quit. Like I dropped out anyway. So I have, I have like four years and two half degrees from mm-hmm. switching universities and trying to pursue different things and find something that was interesting. And I guess i like that disappointment. It's annoying. The university problem is annoying. I think mm-hmm. they take advantage of a lot of young people, put them in a lo- boatload of debt. Don't teach them anything that's worth learning and bettering themselves. And then say, hey, yeah, you need this degree to get a job. It's like, why? Why do I need this random degree to get a job that has nothing to do with it? That's just some weird societal thing that isn't even relevant anymore. Apparently, fifty-four percent of businesses in twenty twenty-four aren't going to require a bachelor's degree anymore. Yeah, so well, it, it's like it's on its I don't. When way out.
1: New Penn and MIT advertised themselves the way they did in Congress. No, there, that certainly comes as no surprise. What
0: yeah, I think the education system, the you know, K to twelve and the university is going to change. I mean, we've yeah. gone from kids used to go to school, maybe from grade eight to maybe grade 12, but maybe grade 10, like maybe a couple of years of school. And then they went off and worked. And now we have kids in school from like three until 25 like yeah. what, <laughs> what are we doing? And if we could, if we could help children to find an avenue of interest and depth when they're young and then launch them out into the world then that'd be much better Yeah, you know that
1: was that was a fundamental ambition of mine back in junior high when i was sitting in my class oh, and so tearing my yeah, hair out thinking yeah. there was this is this is awful a, well and the thing time. is it's way more awful now yeah because like my teachers were uninspiring but they weren't uninspiring and ideologically addled and malevolent right yeah, right so Hopefully. i thought it was bad already now it's unconscionably bad. Yeah. Well, wow.
2: hopefully when we expand, I mean, the other thing that excites me about Peterson Academy, I think is the social element mm-hmm. because it's like social media. I mean, you can find people you like on Instagram, you can make connections and things, but I think having people who are interested in learning and improving their lives on a platform where they can communicate with each, with each other, because we have the social media component could be really beneficial yeah. for people. Yeah. Um, and then who knows how that'll grow if we can turn on location so people yep. can meet with people yeah. each other yeah, yeah. and maybe in a year or so when we see how this is going we can expand so that we can be teaching younger kids mm-hmm. yeah that mm-hmm.
1: well and maybe we'll be able to bring people together in conferences and so forth and yeah. on a relatively yeah. regular basis i mean one of the things we've envisioned as you know is having if we have enough students to make it worthwhile is having local conferences where yeah. we bring you know, eight of our best professors in for two days and bring people together and they can meet and they can, they can get hyper educated for, you know, a boot camp for, for 16 hours of lectures in three days. And that could, that could work very, very efficiently. And it's, it's also a model that isn't necessarily targeted only to people who are, you know, 18 to 22
2: yeah there's no reason that
1: university education should be targeted to people who are 18 to 22 Mm, no that just makes no sense
2: that that's the other thing we should probably clarify is yes it's not targeted towards a specific age it's if you want to learn the content it's there you also don't have to pursue a diploma if you don't want to you can just take the courses and learn yeah uh yeah yeah and we'll have
1: quite a flexible accreditation model Mm -hmm. so
2: Yeah. That's really exciting. So that's what I'm excited about. And and growing the podcast and doing in-person podcasts. Obviously the baby is very exciting. A little hormonal right now, but very (laughs) exciting. Uh, and then I don't know, I've got some other things. I've got the fuller health uh, supplements going on. That seems to be doing really well. And what else? There's more, well, I've got some ideas going on we have this Mm -hmm. dating app idea right so
1: yeah yeah we talked about that i want to do that really badly i wanted
2: to do that for a while so but that's a little bit in the future um oh yeah and then the diet things i mean line Mm -hmm. diet's just brand of its own now um that seems to be helping people and Mm -hmm. i want to keep expanding that um because i think it's beneficial for people and learning more about our health right yeah and learning more about our health so Mm -hmm. Yeah, lot. my plate is well, full that's it's definitely is overflowing
1: yeah well we had a great year like 2023 was was like we planned it quite carefully and everything we planned
0: worked yeah
1: and we Yay. have a very good team our mm-hmm. team has been excellent really our logistics guys our security guys mm-hmm. our agents yeah um smooth it's smooth yeah our tour manager deadly people like they don't cause trouble. They're extremely helpful. They're completely on board. Our secretary, Jordan Spencer, he's yeah. great and, and, and very good. All the people around me are very good at dealing with the public and, and, and that's been a, a, a tricky thing to manage, to find security people who are good at logistics and, and dealing with the public. But all the things we planned far in advance, they all laid out. The art conference was spectacularly successful and it's worked out real well online. I mean, I think Constantine Kissin's talk on the Arc site alone has a million oh, views, he it's it. got at least another million, you know, in views in distributed platforms. Yeah, he nailed it. And it's not the most popular talk now. Oh, it is. Oh. No, no, the energy talk by uh, hmm. Steve. Uh, his name momentarily escapes me, but it's the number one talk on the on the Arc site. Yeah, on an intelligent energy policy. Not Coonan, right? No, no, it wasn't Kunin. Um. So. Wow. So that's very exciting. The arc thing is extremely exciting, and
2: it's a new thing. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Well, it's Just getting going. Sounds good. Here's to twenty twenty four then. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Well, thanks for the invitation, Mick. Yeah. And for being you. hospitable while well, mm-hmm. we've been staying with you for the last complicated three weeks.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for coming. It's been it's been easy.
1: Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. That's good. That's high praise indeed when you're (laughs) staying with family. Yeah, yeah. Right, Mm -hmm. right.